This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Brinefield Services Company, Zolandez. Check them out at zolandez.com. That's Z-E-L-A-N-D-E-Z dot com. It's Joe Lowry. Welcome to another episode of the Global Lithium Podcast. This is episode 124. My guest today is my good friend and certainly technology mentor, Dr. Yuan Gao. I have known Yuan for over 25 years. We used to work together at FMC Lithium, but we've stayed in touch since that time. Yuan has served as the CEO of Chinese cathode maker Pulid. He has since transitioned out of that position, moved back to the United States. He is now on the board of directors of Lithium Americas, and he is sought after for his advice by many companies around the world. We have a wide-ranging discussion we get into various aspects of cathode. We talk about the coming build out of US and Europe battery supply change and the challenges that uh, will be faced. We discuss the future of solid state batteries, recycling, and also get into why the lithium cost curve will go up over time. In addition to being one of the brightest minds, in the lithium-ion space, Yuan is also one of the nicest human beings you'd meet. He's just a first-class individual, and I am happy to have him on the podcast again. Without further ado, Dr. Yuan Gao. You're listening to the Global Lithium Podcast. Dr. Yuan Gao, welcome to the Global Lithium Podcast. Hi, Joe. Uh, thank you for having me here. Nice to be back. It's always a pleasure. It's been 18 months since we caught up on your last uh, visit to the podcast. You've transitioned from the role you had the last time we talked. How are you spending your time these days? Oh, well, I think since we met online last time, uh, it's been getting busier because I think uh, this space or uh, EV, lithium-ion battery, uh, lithium resource, uh, the the general space has been, it has become more interesting, more activities. Last time we talked, it was right after the, the new laws had been uh, promulgated in China that were going to take effect in January on safety. Can you bring us up to date on what you've seen? We've had a year now since they came into effect. Do you believe they were significant or is the market just developing as markets do? Certainly, this is not news anymore. I think we have all seen uh, FFP has, uh, has been picking up steam. The last 11 months, we have seen a, a very strong growth in lithium-iron phosphate. Uh, having said that, I am still a believer in uh, NMC. Uh, both uh, FFP and NMC, I think different chemistry, different castle, are suitable for different applications. And we'll continue to see some diversity in castle chemistries. This is a fact. 
this uh, this year uh, FOP has been much stronger than uh, the growth more stronger than 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 uh, an MC. I'd like to get into some more details on that, but before we do that, let's just set the stage. It seems to me, and you can correct me if this is an incorrect assumption, from prior conversations, it seems China always had a seasonality in the cathode market. And there would be a slowdown at the end of the year, maybe, and then in the run-up to Chinese New Year, things might be slow. From what I'm reading this year, at least with respect to lithium, and it's probably due to the the crazy prices we have right now, that the fourth quarter is probably stronger than it's ever been as a fourth quarter relative to the market. you have any thoughts on that? Well, yeah, I, I know there uh, has been a stronger or amplified seasonality in China. Um, I don't fully understand why, even though you have a first-hand feel, uh, but it's a fact. When there's a short supply, price tend to go much higher in China. And when, when there's an oversupply situation and the price will go much lower, the bottom in China tend to be lower. So the swing tend to be bigger. Maybe it's just because of lack of a degree of freedom or something. And because when you add, when you have a system, you have a more degree of freedom. It tends to stabilize more easily, but it, I don't know. It, 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 I, I can't explain why is that. <laughs> that it's just, we're getting a lot of surprises in a lot of areas these days. Okay, transitioning back to the, the cathode market now, what are your thoughts on the new derivation of LFP? I guess we'd call it LMFP. Yeah, how do you think that that plays? Because people do like uh, this uh, uh, iron phosphate system, and one downside, everyone of course knows knows it is that the energy density is low. So of course, and one look around, look at the manganese substituted or LMFP. Oh, is the uh, silver lining? Yes, because if the ener- theoretically energy density be higher, so you would wonder, can I get the uh, the best of both worlds? All the benefit of iron phosphate and also have a higher energy density. But there is a challenge to that uh, chemistry. Uh, one is if you look at the, the increase of energy density, it comes from the increase of a voltage by manganese. So when you put in manganese, you see part of the voltage curve moves up, passes the increase, uh, because that's determined by amount of lithium it can host. It doesn't change. But the voltage, a part of the voltage goes up. So now this is a challenge to the downstream users. Uh, the voltage profile has two voltage plateaus. So how do you design your, your, your circuitry? You design it as a four volt system, you de- design a three volt system. Uh, if you design it a three volt system, that additional voltage, uh, that energy be wasted as heat. And if you design a four volt system then the lower part of the voltage will not be used. So that's a challenge. I think that's a, a big challenge. Uh, I don't know. I, I myself don't have a solution. I, I know a lot of uh, smart people, uh, people smart, a lot smarter than me, probably working on this. So probably some, some solution, but with a cost. And the other thing is, once you put in the manganese, the density of the castle tend to, uh, tend to be lower. And of course, you know, in the last couple of years in this industry, or FLP uh, space, people have been moving uh, towards making higher density LFP so you can pack more material 
So once you switch to LMFE, the density, the packing density becomes smaller. Of course, people are working very hard on solving that problem. But to me, that's the two challenges we have to overcome. So in the near term, you think the the continued growth will be the current LFP product, and then it may take some time to uh, modify it. Is that is that what I'm hearing? Yep, yep, yeah, I I, I think so. Well, uh, LFP has its problem too. Obviously, energy density is, is lower. That's determined by the chemistry. Uh, I think people are trying to uh, reduce that gap by uh, optimizing the cell configuration, that sort of thing. So at the system level, the gap becomes small. Uh, the other challenge is that the, the uh, low temperature performance of FLP, I think has been addressed. So there's some existing challenges to FLP itself too, but I think a lot of the smart uh, scientists and engineers are working on them. Uh, well, uh, MFV, of course, I think, give, given enough time, we'll see. But uh, it's a little bit harder challenges. Well, I've got another question along those lines, and that would be cobalt-free high nickel material. What are your thoughts on that? And uh, just an update on what you see that doing, if anything. Well, um, let's talk about high nickel. Um, I've I, uh, well, having said a lot of uh, things about FLP, I, I'm also a believer in high nickel NMC. I think uh, each chemistry has its uh, advantage and disadvantage, and it's probably suitable for certain applications. For application, it absolutely need high energy density. You cannot use FLP. It has to be high nickel NMC. And um, I just personally uh, don't like this... Uh, catchphrase, cobalt-free, because I don't believe in going extreme. Um, yes, you do need to reduce the amount of a cobalt because, well, cobalt is a byproduct from copper and nickel mining. So no matter you need it or not, you will come out of the ground. But the, uh, the ratios, well, there's different minerals, different ratios. But let's say uh, for the sake of argument, let's say 20 to 1. So you take out 20 tons of either nickel or, uh, or copper, you get one ton of cobalt. Everyone goes cobalt-free. Cobalt be useless. Well, there's some existing use, of course, for magnets and other alloys and, and so forth. But this, compared to battery, is small. So with electrification of transportation, we're going to see a lot more nickel and copper. And we're going to see a lot of a cobalt coming out of the ground. And a little bit of cobalt in NMC, especially high nickel uh, NMC, will go a long way in stabilizing the structure, improving cycle life, and rate capability. Both rate capability, you see very strong effect on rate capability and cycle life just with a little bit of cobalt. And if you drive it to uh, cobalt free, um, doesn't work very well. So uh, my point is, uh, maybe uh, you can publish paper you want to stump people by having a absolute slogan, cobalt free. But in reality, uh, you don't need to go extreme. I, I like uh, reduced cobalt instead of a cobalt free con- uh, concept. Well, I think the, the FDA allows you to call cola calorie free if it has less than 10 calories. <laughs> so maybe maybe we'll have you know a, a, a diet high NMC with uh, what Sumitomo Metal Mining told me, and, and I'm not asking you to verify this, this is just what they put on the whiteboard, that they were down to, in NCA, 
it was a it was just over slightly over two percent. Yeah, I think uh, I think two to three percent will be um, my again the the lower the cobalt loading, the harder it is to make the material. But I, I, I personally think a two to three percent will be needed. It'll be okay. But so maybe we don't low. say co- cobalt free. We say cobalt light or something. Well, maybe yeah. As you said, <laughs> if you define cobalt free by less than three percent, then I'd be happy. Okay. Well, but we want to keep you happy. Zero. <laughs> if I learned my lessons from prior conversations with you, isn't cobalt pretty important to maintaining the structural integrities? Of, yep. the, of the cathode so that the, the ions can move back and forth without uh, the, yeah, the yeah. tunnels collapsing, I guess. is Hobo uh, hold transition metal tight in their layer. So uh, it's like uh, if you have an army of uh, nickel uh, atoms on the cobalt surface of sergeants <laughs> holding them. <laughs> okay. So you don't, you don't, you don't have, a, uh, you have zero cobalt and you have a very undisciplined army of a nickel. All right. I like, I like the military analogy. It works for me. You've been in this industry a long time. You're, I think on your podcast from Santiago, we refer to you as the cathode OG. That's an overstatement. <laughs> I'm very flattered. <laughs> anyway, Asia's always dominated this industry. There is, it's, it's not even That's close. True. That's true. And most of our working together was Asia-centric. We might be at the, the point where the market starts to turn and they're to, towards more balance. We always talk about balance with respect to battery raw materials. Well, it seems like now Europe and North America want to have, at least they say they want to have, regionalized lithium battery supply chain. Um, yeah, I think there's uh, hope to have regionalized supply chain in North America and Europe outside Asia because in sheer volume quantity for, for, for vehicles, I think it's completely different dynamics. Uh, if you remember when we started in the space uh, in the 90s, even uh, there was high hope in the US, um, both Everidy and Duracell uh, made big announcement. They're going to build lithium-ion battery factories Back in the U.S., I think everybody in Florida, they were selling Connecticut, and pretty soon they decided, uh, hey, uh, it doesn't make it didn't make sense because at that time, so uh, all the lithium-ion batteries, small cells, went into small electronics, and the electronics were centered in at that time in Japan. Actually, so the volume is so small. If you remember back then. If someone, let's say Sony, made a million cells, small ones, 18650s per month, that was considered a big deal. Uh, so moving material back and forth in the 90s was no big deal. Uh, in fact, it was uh, pretty fashionable. And uh, now, well, you remember how much, uh, how many tons of uh, lithium you sold per year uh, into the battery industry. But now, it's, if you look at sheer volume, of course, it, it no longer makes sense to do things like that. So I, I, I do think localized supply chain will make a lot of sense. But um, the only cha- uh, the challenge is that for, for Americans and Europeans, uh, we have a learning curve to, to climb uh, because in Asia, they have the almost three decades experience ahead of us. They, 
they had the experience of making lithium battery cells for electronics. They had even almost 10 years experience, like in China, almost 10 years experience making large format cells for vehicles. It's very difficult to shortcut this kind of uh, experience and learning curve. And the learning curve costs money too. And this cost, increased cost, will have to be absorbed by somebody. Exactly. I go back to, I think it was 2015. You were at Pulid. I came out to Qinghai for the Green Energy Festival, yep. I think it was called. And yep. we toured your cathode facility. And then later that day, I believe it was ATL's, at that point, mini gigafactory. I think uh, maybe. C-A-T-L. Yeah. Gigafactory about five minutes from Pulis Castle. Right. But it was half a gig at the time, I think. They had a model, as you often see in China, of what the future would hold. They had mm-hmm. a scale model. This is six years ago, but this was after many years. Pulis wasn't a new company then. Pulis had been around for a while and ATL, then later CATL. So now we have. Redwood Materials in the U.S. citing their ambition. And yes, they have J.B. Straubel, who used to work at Tesla, who who knows a lot about batteries, but still the ambition to do 100 gigawatt hours of cathode in the United States by 2025. How do you think about that in terms of even with links to LNF, I guess they have mm-hmm. technology link with LNF, but it just seems to me like that's a really ambitious target. Nothing wrong with yeah. stretch targets, but how do, how do you see that playing out and how do you build the skill sets that enable you to go from say 10 gig to hundred mm-hmm. gig, and then they want to be at 500 gig by 2030, at least that's what the the press says. Right. Yeah. That's what I meant by a a steep learning curve cost. Yes. uh, I'm glad they have a technology provider. In this case, LNF been operating in Korea for a long time. Certainly have uh, gained a lot of experience, but even you have a technology provider, a proven technology, even uh, based my past experience, even when you duplicate your plant operation. So that means you're, 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 engineering design, your technology, everything is proven. You just expand your production by duplicating your lines. And when you turn it on, you will generate a lot of off-spec material because you have new operators, new engineers, a production engineer. You have a lot of inexperienced employees and you will take some time to achieve the target you design for. And that during that time, it will cost you a lot of money. Then this is assuming you're expanding your production. Now, if you're not expanding your production, you're a newcomer, then your learning curve costs will be even bigger than that because you don't even have any in-house experienced people. I think this is a challenge people here in the U.S. and also in Europe have to be prepared for. I'm all for localized supply chain. We need to prepare for this learning curve cost. Someone need to help the U.S. players and European players to absorb this cost. So in in my view, I think there are many different ways. One, of course, the market. But I, based on my past experience, it's very hard for market to absorb this kind of cost by, hey, I will accept higher 
crisis here in the U.S. Um, the second one is uh, absorbed by the society as a whole in the form of a government incentive or something. That's exactly what happened in China in the last how many years? I don't even remember. That actually helped a lot in building the supply chain in China. So the thirdly, I think is more importantly, if you look at the current engineering uh, process technology along the supply chain, there's a lot of inefficiencies. That's basically because it was convenient to do it that way 20 or 30 years ago. People just have the baggage, but not necessarily uh, the, uh, the best way. So I would encourage people to look at each process step very hard and then go back to the drawing board. I think we can take out a lot of inefficiency. Then we can reduce the cost significantly. And then hopefully we'll offset or partially offset the uh, learning curve cost. So we, sh- we need to take the advantage of this country being a house of innovation to offset our disadvantage, which means we, we're, we're a latecomer. <laughs> we have a big a learning curve to climb. That would be my suggestion. Well, in addition to the steep learning curve costs, it seems to me that now, probably more so in Europe, but also strongly in the U.S., you have ESG considerations that back when we were first in this business and and you toured plants, it was pretty clear that uh, the ESG expectations of 2021 did not exist in 2001. And that's going to add a layer of cost that may make yep. the, the social cost, if, if you want to say the government needs to, to pay, or I, I'm pretty sure that American consumers are not willing at this time, for the most part, to pay those costs. I could be wrong, but when you look at the world, how do you see this the movement towards ESG impacting how cathode is made. I mean, Dan Dan Blondell talked about it on his recent visit to the podcast with moving all the sulfate around. It's not just mining. It's the the, the forms of materials you're using and and the negative, potentially negative environmental impacts those can have. Yeah, I uh, I think we're definitely for us to start a lithium-ion battery supply chain in this country we are held as to a much higher standard compared to whoever started the 20 or 30 years ago. Um, this is a, as if I'm 20 years old. All of a sudden, you asked me to become an uh, Olympian to compete with another 20-year-old who started the train uh, from uh, age five. It's the uh, last 15 years to improve himself. And all of a sudden, you, you hold me to this very high standard we have less chance to make mistakes. This is another, another cost we have to overcome. And again, you come back to uh, what I said earlier. I think we will have to go back to the drawing board, look very hard at each process step. Some of them, I think, make sense. Some of them, it's just a package from history. It was uh, convenient to do it that way. And today, it might not make sense anymore. So unless we have some... Uh, technological breakthroughs or innovation, put in um, process engineering. Uh, well, design of atoms, uh, that's a different thing. Now put it aside, just on um, process engineering, I think we still have a lot of room to improve. 
Uh, without that, I think it's very hard to meet this higher standard we're held against. Well, you said it very well on a prior visit to the podcast when you said that if you can predict it, it's probably incremental improvement. If it's a step change or a real, a true innovation, those are very hard to predict when they're going to happen. I go back to the the Redwood and, and wanting a, to put up a huge number within four years. It just seems like something's going to have to change beyond incrementalism in order for that to happen and still be within the cost parameters that you need to have to be competitive. That's right. That's right. And you have to take advantage of your strengths against your weakness. And your weakness is that you don't have experience. You're, uh, you're, you're, you're 20 years behind. And your strength is uh, in this country, we have this uh, culture of innovation, also infrastructure for in, uh, innovation. And well, people tend to uh, uh, think out of box. Yeah, and, and hopefully, hopefully that happens and hopefully it happens soon. It's just that we both know that over the last two and a half, uh, I won't say three decades, it's probably closer to two and a half, yeah. that we've been watching this. And as people operating out of America, you would you would hear the noise, you would hear the Duracell or EverReady or even Saft in Florida talk about, okay, we're, we're here, we're ready to go. And if you look around you, there's even what Tesla does in Nevada is still largely driven by Japanese technology. Right. So I, I guess I'm, I'm really hopeful that things speed up, but I think to, to believe that uh, we're going we're gonna to have huge EV penetration here based on a localized supply chain within four or five years is, yep. is, is pretty hard to see. Let me ask another question. If you look at the map of the, the battery map that Europe plans and you look at some of the announcements here, they still seem very much high nickel biased. Mm -hmm. And as you see globally with the knowledge you have of the whole world transition to electrification, do you think that's practical or do you see what happened is happening now in China happening here where there's balance between the cheaper or I won't say cheap, I'll, I'll use the term less expensive, mm -hmm. lithium, iron, phosphate, cathode, in the, in the high nickels. Do, do you believe that in 2030 we'll have more balance on, on this side of the world as EV penetration grows? I think in a few years we'll see a more balanced distribution in terms of uh, battery chemistry in Europe, Europe as well because market is very unforgiven. You can say whatever, or you can plan whatever you want. Um, you can uh, maybe uh, by saying making the highest energy density battery in the world, you will excite people, excite your supporter, uh, investor, whoever your, your, your audience might be. But at the end of the day, you will have to compete in the market. You will have to sell your product. And the market tend not to be very forgiving. And then you will be forced to make a balanced portfolio. And the customer, a consumer will buy best value. They might not necessarily buy, well, um, if you look at the cell phones, 
there's a big distribution of different type of cell phone. It's not like everyone will buy the uh, the one has the most of function, uh, the largest of memory, the, the coolest ones. If you look at the uh, even the conventional auto market, it's not everyone will buy a, a race car. Well, and that's that's been something that that's kind of bothered me about all the pronouncements and plans I've seen. And it's not it's it's both Europe and North America is that it seems to be that everybody the assumption is everybody's going to buy a a high end a high end car, and that's just not how the economy works. But uh, I I think we agree on that one. So I'll I'll move on. Uh, when you were the first time you were on the podcast and, and we touched on solid state batteries, you gave mm-hmm. a great example saying that solid state batteries are already here. That you talked about one of the customers that we had when we were at FMC mm-hmm. that already had implemented solid state, but there were issues with it because it, it really needed to be a fleet vehicle that right. it needed to stay warm and that was uh, Bolare's uh, yep. you know, blue solution, I guess. But yeah, blue solutions, yes. How do you see? You know, now we've got a SPAC that you know bought a is brought a company in your backyard yep. <laughs> onto the public markets with a lot of optimism, and then you know we've had uh, other big announcements and huge market caps with what's purported to be solid state battery solutions. How do you see that playing out time-wise and technology-wise? Yeah, um, and, and again, uh, just to uh, recap, um, there's, uh, to me, there are two main technical challenges. One is a, uh, um, the solid electrolyte tend to have a lower conductivity at room temperature. So you have to operate at an elevated temperature. The other is uh, uh, electrode electrolyte electrolyte interface because the electrodes tend to expand and contract during charge and discharge. So interface tend to move. It, it, it might delaminate as a, that tendency. Yeah. So I'm not saying there's no solution. There are solutions to these two major problems, but they tend to be costly. So uh, in my view, again, it's only my personal view. I could be wrong. Um, so I think we'll see commercialized uh, solid state listen battery, but it will be for niche application just because uh, the increased cost for the benefit you, you, you gain. So you will, uh, I, I personally believe in the next 10 years, the mainstream will still be listen ion battery. As we'll start to see um, inroad by solid state listen battery but it will be for niche application. The other thing we have been seeing um, in the last year or so is a hybrid. Uh, so say it's solid uh, state, but it's not, not really solid state. So I'll call it the uh, hybrid. It's solid, solid state light. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So maybe, uh, maybe people have to make some compromise. <laughs> And again, that's the thing. Um, in the real world, you don't have to go extreme. Sometimes whatever that works. <laughs> well, I think that's that's right. And I, that all goes back really to the premise of balance. 
the media likes the dramatic statement and the and the bold vision, but uh, bringing that to fruition is often a very uh, complicated effort. This episode of the Global Lithium Podcast is sponsored by Zalandez, a Brinefield services company providing real-time, actionable data. Zalandez recently saved a major lithium brine producer up to 50% in their drilling costs and increased brine well production rates by as much as 40%. Find out more at zalandez.com. And one of the other complications that this transition to electrification is going to cause is the amount of recycling that's going to be necessary in the future. Just like to check in with you on your perspective on uh, recycling and, and when you think that from a battery metals perspective, when you think recycling will be able to make a significant contribution, you know, not, not four or 5%, but yeah, 20%. Yeah. Well, I, I think from the sheer volumes standpoint, I think recycling is absolutely necessary. As we electrify our transportation system, there will be um, now because the penetration rate is still relatively small. I say it by 2035, if we do achieve, well, first, I, I don't know. It's pretty challenging to achieve 50%, but say we, we achieve 30, 40%. That's still a very significant number. We, without recycling, it's unimaginable. You have to, just from waste handling and also material efficiency, uh, ESGs, you, you, can, you can look at from so many different angles, then you conclude recycling is such a critical piece of it. Uh, so I, I'm a big supporter to uh, battery recycling, absolutely necessary. Then when do we see that become, oh, the battery metal coming back, um, that will become a significant contribution to material supply. Uh, I think it will take a long time because um, when you start up a, a factory, you have a lot of uh, factory scrap. That's, but that also increases demand. So, <laughs> so it's probably, it's a wash. Yeah, you, you do have a material to recycle early stage, but also your demand become bigger, your base become bigger. So if you look at, uh, uh, if you do the simple math, uh, let's say, I, I know it's a, a, a different people's car, different, uh, different battery have different li- lifespan. Just for the sake of argument, let's make it simple, 10 years. I know it's a Gaussian distribution. Some, some, some people's car may, uh, some extreme outlier may be five, six years. Some people's car may be 15 years. So I'd make a Gaussian distribution. Then make it the 10 years. So today's car, you're not going to see them until 10 years from now. And uh, depending on the annual growth rate, uh, it could be uh, the market can become five or demand can become five or 10 times bigger than it is today. So, uh, well, whether the growth is closer to 20% or 30% per year. If it's closer to 20% per year, probably five times. Closer to 30% per year, be 10, 10 times. Then let's say it's, it's five times. Then, you, you, then you, you do have a 20%. But 10 years from now, if demand is 10 times than, than, than today, then your recycled material only account for 10%. 
of the supply. So, well, the case I've always made is that in the next decade, in the buildup of all these gigafactories, just recycling the scrap that didn't become a battery in the first place is not the circular economy. It's a necessary thing. Actually, it's a critical thing to have happen, but it, it actually delays the lithium trip into a working EV. It, right. it, it actually is the, the opposite case is that now in, instead of it, as each gigafactory writes the process, there's going to be more demand for mine material in the short run. Yep. It's an inefficiency, you yeah. can call it. It's a, it's a, you make it pass to consumer longer in a way. That's right. No, it does. It makes the, it, it's the, the critical path becomes the efficiency of the gigafactory and how fast they uh, get the reject rate down. So the circular economy isn't until you're past that. And then right. you're, you're truly having kind of the virtuous circle where you're not just uh, recycling mistakes, but you're recycling batteries that have lived their useful life. Yeah. And to your point, and, and when do we see recycled material become a significant contribution to supply? That has to be after, some years after the industry become mature, namely the grocery come below, say, 10%, become single digit. Then, even then, you have to wait for some years before recycling catches up. It becomes mainstream. And the case in point is the lead acid. Uh, if you look at the, uh, look at the lead acid, that's a, that's a more than significant portion of a lead is recycled. As, uh, I, I don't remember the exact number. I think it's uh, more than 90% of the lead. Is recycled because <laughs> the industry has been uh, in maturity for so many years. Yeah. Well, let me let me pose one other question, and that would be the relative economics of an LFP battery, which has a portfolio of less expensive raw materials, except the lithium, than an NCA as do you do you see that as an issue or it's just going to be the market has to sort out who actually pays for the recycling because mm -hmm. the the recovered materials may not may not pay the bill well um definitely you're right nmc have a battery uh recycling has a much better economics than lvp battery recycling because lvp battery you you don't have uh expensive cobalt and nickel to recover. Uh, but however, uh, I think economics has been changing the last, rapidly changing uh, during the last 12 months or so. Uh, one, on one hand, we have been seeing listen price has, has gone up. Of course, it's uh, cyclic. Uh, we'll see you come back, you'll go up again. But each time, I believe the bottom will be higher. It will be. The last one. You're because right. as the aluminum industry is growing from 400,000 tons LCE per year to say 4 million tons, you will have to add more suppliers. And you, as you add more new resource developers, new suppliers, that, that cost curve, 
cost volume curve move to higher. Right. So, so listen, listen price is becoming higher and higher. That gives more room for the recyclers. On the other hand, uh, the recyclers has been doing very good job in reducing costs of re uh, recycling and also uh, economic skill, all the factors. So with all the factors combined, uh, recycling LFP battery already, I think already become economical. Um, okay. And I, I think it will become more attractive in the coming years. All right. Thank you. Well, this has been another conversation where I've learned some things, but I'd like to move now to rapid fire because you've always been one of the best responders to the rapid fire questions. But this time is going to be a first. You're, you're episode 124, and I've never asked rapid fire in this manner. Here's the thing. You and I have eaten all over the world. Yes. We have eaten together across Japan, across China, in the U.S., Canada, Chile. So I'm going to ask you. We need to eat in Africa, one <laughs> yeah, of those things. That's right. We, we do. And Africa. I'm going to give you three cities, and then you tell me what you would order for dinner in those three cities. Okay. Next time we're together in Chengdu, what are you ordering for dinner? Oh, uh, I, uh, I personally not lover of spicy food so uh every time i was in chandu i kind of struggle because then i have to eat local food i tend to be uh, very spicy it, 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 it burns me so 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 uh i i don't know um i guess uh but as a rule of thumb uh you just have to act as a local they have the best of Sichuan food you, you you order Sichuan food but um um since you Oh, I assume we'll only be there for a shorter period of time. I guess that my digestive system probably can't stand for, for a couple of days. But more than that, I will have a problem. I have a stomach upset. I'm, I'm just crestfallen that you didn't start off with Mabo Dofu and go to Laza Jiding. Uh, okay, so let's, let's move on to someplace. Yeah, they I have a Fuji Fabian. They have uh, <laughs> many, many different... It will be easier. Many it will different... Be... Uh, food but you cannot have it every day you you you, you have a stomach upset okay tokyo i think this oh, is tokyo. an easier one yeah for you. uh i would go to a, a sushi restaurant and my i just uh that's i i, I like uh, i know they moved the tukiki uh fish market but i yeah. i like to find the new um, new fish market uh, i haven't been to the new one since they moved and uh it's on the at the, at the uh, sushi bar I enjoy uh, the fresh sushi sashimi and watching chefs, lively uh, uh, chefs, interacting with uh, incoming uh, customers. What are your top three fish selections at Skiji? Um, I think combination. I I, I was uh, I know uh, Toro is very good, but they tend to be expensive. But I like a Thai. I Thai is a, the very yeah. tasty. Thai is a very tasty fish. And inexpensive, and, and I, I like that too. Uh, so I like to have a combination of many different things. I love it, uni, love it. Uh, so many different fish choice choices there. Well, Thai is the Thai is so, in my top three as well. Yeah. So I and think the presentations it, it looks so appealing too. Uh, the the 
the, 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 a little bit the red color at the edge. It looks so brilliant, so colorful. All right. If you are in your old hometown of Vancouver, what do you have for dinner? Oh, um, Vancouver is such a nice place for, for food. And, and again, I will tend to have a, um, a seafood. Actually, uh, on the last night, last evening of my Vancouver trip last week, I have a very old friend, a local a Vancouver person. He treated me with uh, Japanese sushi at Canada Place. Uh, I think it's a place called Miku, just overseeing the harbor. Uh, it's, it's a nice view. You watch sunset. You enjoy pretty fresh. It's, uh, I think Vancouver is one of the places where you can have fresh, top-grade sushi outside of Japan. So that, I would love to go back to that place again. And also, uh, you have a, a great Chinese, Cantonese dim sum restaurant in, in Vancouver. Uh, you have a Greek restaurant. On, and also, uh, Stanley Park, you have this uh, great restaurant called Tea House. as a French cuisine. And you watch sunset over English Bay, enjoy <laughs> This is just, um, there's no shortage of, you can, uh, you have uh, so many choices of great food and great scenery, a combination of great food and great scenery in Vancouver. That's uh, very unique because a lot of places you have a great food, but no scenery. Yeah, that's, that's certainly true in Japan. A lot of the, re- some of the rest, best restaurants are in oh, the basement. basement. <laughs> so, yeah, basement restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> Final question. This is Thanksgiving week in the U.S., Yep. What will the gals be eating on Thanksgiving? Well, um, that's a that's a problem. Actually, uh, my <laughs> wife and I were were, were discussing uh, yesterday. We're, actually, we're going to have a guest from her university uh, at home on Thanksgiving Day, and w- every year we struggle because we don't have so much uh, appetite as consuming a whole turkey problematic so we always got by by buying uh, by baking turkey parts uh, turkey legs turkey wings that's sort of a so we could we could we could uh, finish them and now this year because supply chain issue we went to several markets and you couldn't find any you have to your choice is either a 20 pound or 30 pound whole turkey or nothing so we haven't decided yet. We might, or we probably will, will still have a, a, in the oven, it'll be a bird, maybe a different bird. Uh, <laughs> well, g- growing up in China, you probably never ate turkey till you were in North America anyway, did you? Exactly, exactly. So, so I, what, I, I, might, what is... I might go to it. I, 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 I might, uh, I'm actually thinking, I might just, uh, there's a, a Cantonese uh, uh, restaurant. We'll just go buy a whole uh Cantonese barbecue duck yeah. as uh, pretend to be a, a turkey. <laughs> I don't know. I haven't. Uh, I haven't talked that to my wife yet. What is turkey in in Putawas? Hoji. A uh, hoji. Yes. Yeah. They're good. Yeah. Okay. What is fire chicken? Yeah, fire chicken. Yeah. Hua <laughs> means the fire. Uh, well, we had to. I, I remember bird. the the years we lived in China. My bride would have to go to the international place and order in a turkey <laughs> because we always did the traditional meal. Anyway, thank you very much. I think well, thank you. the listeners 
have a better sense of the man and his palate after today's discussion. Well, thank you so much, Joe. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Well, it's, it's, it's been a pleasure. I think this is the fourth time you've been on. And uh, I actually have people writing me saying, when are, when are you going to have Dr. Gao on again? So thank you very much. And hopefully we see each other face-to-face soon. Yes, that's certainly my hope. I learn new things every time I talk to Yuan Gao, whether it's just one of our normal catch-ups or having him on the podcast. I am recording this on November 24th, the day before U.S. Thanksgiving. I just want to congratulate my friends at Standard Lithium and my friends at Coke Industries. I know both teams pretty well, and I am glad to see that they are joining forces. I believe it will be a powerful combination with far-reaching impacts as the U.S. tries to develop a robust battery supply chain. This is just more good news for my friends in El Dorado, Arkansas. So let me congratulate uh, all you good people that I've met on my few trips down there. And I look forward uh, to seeing you again soon. I think uh, we all have many things to be thankful for. To my U.S. listeners, happy Thanksgiving. And to everyone else, have a great day. Thanks again for listening to the podcast.